have your Bibles open to Deuteronomy chapter 4. We'll mostly be in Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 6. I don't know if you've read the book or seen the movie Flag of Our Fathers. It's a book written that follows the lives of the six Marines that were taken in a photograph, the most reproduced photograph in the whole world. There's never been a photograph that's been reproduced as often as the photograph of the six Marines planting the American flag on top of a little island called Iwo Jima. And so one of the sons of the fathers writes the story about how these six men even got to that particular place. Three of them died before they returned home. And then he just sort of follows the lives of the other three, one of which is his father as he returns back to America. James Bradley is the author, one of the sons, and he makes this observation about the Marines in general in the book. He says this, when you join the Marines, there's a subtle destruction of your civilian mentality. And I mean that in a good way. A Marine can't think like a civilian. He has to think differently to be a good fighter. If you're going to be a Marine... You have to think differently. You you can't think like a civilian if you're going to be a good fighter. And most people understand that transformation that would happen in a Marine or somebody else that's in the military. And I think if you're a follower of Christ, you can definitely understand that same parallel. There's a transformation that must take place from the old life that you were used to, and you're going to go in now to a different kind of life. Paul says this in Romans 12, too. Most of you would know this verse. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world. You're not supposed to be cut out of the the cookie, uh, the sort of the cookie cutter pattern of this world. Don't be conformed any longer to these patterns, but be transformed. You're, that's the word in the Greek. That's the word metamorphosis that we think about a, a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. There's a, there's going to be this overhaul. And the overhaul is going to take place by the renewing of your mind. That's the beginning of it. Once, once, once the Holy Spirit has come down into your life, now your, your mind has to be renewed. It has to be renovated. You might think of it as going into an old house and saying, okay, all of this furniture in this house, I have to get rid of this furniture, and now I have to put in new furniture. I have to have a transformation. And granted, it doesn't take, it's not a wholesale event typically. It's just one piece at a time. You begin to say, no, that's old thinking. That's an old way of living. I've got to take that kind of thinking out of my life. And you have to put something in, new into it. You can't just be taking things out. And what you're going to renovate your mind with is the Word of God. Dallas Willard says this about transformation. If a convert's habits remain the same, they will realize little of the life of Christ. If you're a a convert, if you're a a new believer, if you're a a new creation, but no habits change, then you're not going to realize much of the life of Christ in your life. And so one of my questions here for us is, are you realizing the life of Christ in your life? Just a little self-assessment. Are you realizing? Is it real? It's not just 
yes, I'm a Christian, and golly, I'm so glad I'm going to get to heaven. But is your life right now, is it being renovated? What would you say? I would ask somebody near you that would be honest enough to say, you might not be able to see things as clearly about yourself as you, sh- as you should. If you would say, I don't think I'm realizing this life, or other people would say, well, yeah, I know you made a commitment, but I don't see any renovation happening, then you might ask if you're still trying to live like a civilian when you're really supposed to be a fighter. Have any of your habits changed? George Mueller, some of you would know who this name is. He began uh, an orphanage in the 1800s in England, and he wrote some, and he had a very interesting life, and his whole life was really a testimony to the power of the Bible. And at one point, he had over 100,000 orphans in these orphanages around England in the 1800s. This is what he says when he was 71 years old. The the first four years after my conversion, which was when he was 20, he's looking back, he says this, The first four years after my conversion, I made no progress because I neglected the Bible. I kept acting like a civilian. I'm putting that in there. But when I regularly read on through through the whole with reference to my own heart and soul, I directly made progress. Then my peace and joy continued more and more. Now I have been doing this for 47 years. I've read through the whole Bible about 100 times. And I've always found it fresh when I begin again. Thus my peace and joy have increased more and more. Last week we talked about the process of transformation. Remember this? We look back in Matthew chapter 3, 4, and 5. And what we concluded from looking at that passage is what happens so frequently with people is that they get to Matthew 3 and the Holy Spirit comes in. They really are a new person. And they say, okay, now what am I supposed to act like? And they immediately jump over Matthew chapter 4, which is the temptation in the wilderness, the exercise of spiritual disciplines, and they go to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And they just say, I'm supposed to love my enemies. I'm supposed to uh, give my money away in large amounts. I'm supposed to do all these things. And they find themselves going, I can read it, it's fairly clear, but I just can't do any of these things. I can't seem to muster up the energy day after day after to do these things. And the problem is, you, you and I and many people have skipped over the spiritual disciplines. Being in the wilderness and exercising our prayer life, our solitude, fasting, and reading of the Word. And so people just jump from, well, I've got to rededicate my life, and now I've got to go act like Christ. That's not working. I must go back and rededicate my life, and then I'm going to try to act like Christ. It just never ends. And the way to get that to the end is to begin to really discipline yourself, to change your habits so that you begin to naturally act out how Christ would want you to do because you have these certain spiritual disciplines. And so when we get to this point, I'm going to specifically talk about reading the Bible. And here I want to just make a note. Uh, This is where I don't like the two-minute devotion. So I don't know if you do a two-minute devotion. So if you think I'm looking at you, I may be. I don't know. 
But I think the two-minute devotion, and there's actually something called the two-minute devotion. You might actually have it on your shelf. But the two-minute devotion, I think, says that you're busy. You've got a lot of things on your plate. If you don't get them done, probably nobody else will. And I've got to take control of my life. And so I've got to fit now God, because I know he's important, I've got to get him into my life. And what I can give him is two minutes. And I think it just fosters this same idea that that's not renovation. That's not taking anything out of your life. That's just saying, I have a house stuffed full of furniture, and now I've got this other piece of important furniture, and I've got to squeeze it in somehow into my life. And Jesus isn't just going to be another piece of furniture in your home. He's renovating your life. And it may be all the things you've stuffed your life with, he's saying, we're getting rid of all those things. All of your thinking that nothing's going to happen unless I do it, I'm going to get rid of that kind of thinking. And so we're not talking about just the two-minute devotion. We're talking about a renovation of your mind, and that's going to take more than two minutes a day. The second quote from the book, Flag of Our Fathers, that I found interesting was this about the Marines. The rifle was an object of obsession. If you join the Marines, apparently the rifle becomes an object of obsession. You clean it several times a day. It's taken apart and reassembled. Then you take it apart and reassemble it blindfolded. Then you do the same thing when you're standing or sitting or lying down. You have to be able to shoot it accurately from any of these particular positions And at different times, you're made to sleep with your own rifle. The application is obvious. If we're going to prevail, if we're going to make any kind of progress, we're going to have to make the Word of God an obsession. Not just a little two-minute devotion. It's got to be something that we can just use blindfolded. I just know it. Psalm 119, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I'm going to just get out there and I'm going to see all kinds of temptations. And I've just got to be able to pull out the rifle right then. I can't say, well, I've got to wait till Sunday or I've got to get back to my Bible. You've got to be able to use it right away. The psalmist says the word of the Lord is more valuable than gold. I'll leave this to your reading later, but in the back of your insert, there's a little piece Uh, that I've copied off the Internet, that just begins to show you how valuable the Word of God is in the life of people who really don't have the Word as an access point. I want to say this is a way of encouragement because this summer I'm teaching the fourth and fifth grade class, so I'm just seeing a few of them here in the congregation. We say, well, let's go to Matthew chapter 13. That's one of the verses we're memorizing, or we'll go to Luke, or we'll go... Lots of these kids really know how to navigate themselves around the Bible. I remember many times in a high school setting, you would ask a high school kid, let's just turn to something zero. They just start thumbing from, you know, the front of their Bible, hoping somehow to run through it. So I'm encouraging, I'm encouraged by the parents of these students that obviously they're taking time to train their kids. And that's an important piece. When we took, to, took a look last week of Matthew chapter 4 and the temptations, do you remember how Jesus responded to each one of those temptations? He quoted Scripture every time. And he quoted, every quote was from the book of Deuteronomy. 
So he probably didn't roll out the scroll. He quoted it. And I am so glad that's what he did. I'm so glad he didn't go up into the air with a flaming sword and lop off the, the head of Satan. Now, he certainly could have. But I couldn't do that. I don't have a flaming sword to lop him off unless I consider that this is the flaming sword. Jesus fought temptation the exact same way you and I fight temptation. It's not a mystery. It's not anything particularly fancy. It's just knowing the Word of God. And when temptation comes into your life, you begin to put the truth of the Word in your mind and you begin to move in the right direction. So we're going to take a look at that. And we're going to look at Deuteronomy as the way that Moses was encouraging the people as they went into this land that was full of milk and honey, but full of idol worship, full of materialism, full of greed. How is it these people are going to survive as they enter into this land? And let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, and we'll pick up just a few pieces and talking about the value of God's Word. First of all, we notice that it, uh, what our responsibility is. Verses 5 and 6, Moses has taught them the Word of God. They know it. He's saying, I've heard from the Lord, and I'm telling you, and you know it. So we need to be in places, and that's one of the thrusts of Christ Community Church, is to teach you what the Word of God actually says. But then what, notice what Moses says. It's not just knowing it. What does he say? You've got to do them. When you get out there, you've got to do them. James says this, be doers of the Word and not hearers only. It's really not particularly valuable if you can just repeat back to me what I've said. Anybody can do that. You can go through a class and just repeat back the information that the teacher said. But what the teacher wants you to do is to go do them. Put them into place. Let them make a difference in the way you live your life. And so Moses is saying, when you get over there, you have to do them. And you'd think that would be the simplest thing to do. But if you have children, you're just very aware that somehow they can repeat back to you exactly what you said. But just somehow, they just can't make it happen. Now, that doesn't happen in my house. I just heard stories like that from your children that that would happen. But, you know, you just get to a place where you say... Son, I've, we've told you this a thousand times. Yep. It's not like he goes, I don't know, or she says, I don't know. It just doesn't put it into place. And I'm saying, let's read the Word, but let's put it into place. Let's get out there and act like we're Christians. And the reason we want to do it is verse 6 and 7, or 7 and 8. Three times, notice this. People are going to look at these people doing stuff and they're going to say, now this is a great nation. This, this is unlike anything else I've ever seen. Every nation comes in conquering with power or wealth. But these people come in and they conquer by the Word of God. So often we just think power and wealth is the way to get somewhere. If we can just get the right people into office, if I can just have enough money, then I could... And God is saying, no, the power, real power, comes from people who live out the Word of God in their life. That's where power is. 
It's not in money. It's not in military might. It's in people who really are living out the word of God. And when they see it, they're going to say, that's a great nation. And they're not just going to be focused on the nation. Then they're going to say, there's something about this God the people are serving. Remember, Jesus says this in Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill not to be hidden. So let your light shine out before men. Why? So they can see your good works. They can see you actually doing them. And what? You know what it says? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Same thing. Most of us would probably testify, if we had a chance to, as a Christian, about some other, some other life that intersected our life. And say that, you know what, it, it, the things begin to make sense when I watched it in this person's life. Maybe I'd heard about it and I go, I just didn't, I just didn't get it. But when I saw it come together in this life, then, oh, it made so much sense. When I was in high school, I had all the information, but I just didn't have enough life to look at. And so I'm at Paisley High School in the 10th grade. Just ninth and tenth grade. And a guy named Howie and a guy named Sherman, who were students at Wake Forest. I'd never heard of them. They just walked onto the campus one day. And I could tell there was something different about their life. And then they started telling me about Christ. Well, I knew the answers to the questions they had. I just hadn't seen somebody really live it. I hadn't seen somebody do it. When I go visit my son at Hoggard High School, I just think, Here, here's 1,500 students. And they're all looking at something or someone. And they're trying to pattern their, their lives after it. And there's such an opportunity right there if you're a student. Or if you're a student in college. Or you're in a neighborhood. Or you're in a workplace to set, for people to say, look at that person. They've got something. They're doing something. It must be something about their God that is different. And then they begin to ask questions. Paul says this to Timothy, you know about my teaching and you know about my way of life. My question for you is, who, who do you have around you? And you need somebody all the time that sort of gives off the aroma. You have somebody like this? You, you just know when I get around them, I just get a, a big whiff of eternity. I get sucked down in my little small problems, but when somehow I get around this person, they're just giving it off. You ha I hope you have somebody like that in your life. And secondly, if you're a believer, who are you to another person like that? When you go to work, when you go to school, when you go back to your neighborhood, what kind of aroma are you giving off? Because people are looking at you. You realize that? I don't care what you say. If you're out there, people are looking at you. And they're getting an idea of who God is by looking at your life. 
So what are you giving away? What kind of aroma is just sort of pouring through your pores? Is it alluring? Is it attractive? Are people beginning to see God because they're watching you live for Him in your daily life? There's a warning here at the end, verse 9. It says, take care or give heed or be on guard or watch out. What are you supposed to watch out for? Yourself. It says, be diligent about your own soul. You need to be careful. Because when you get into this land, the biggest problem in this land is not idol worship. The biggest problem in this land is going to be you. Because you're going to go in and you're going to occupy great cities. You're going to have houses that are full of things. You're going to have all that you need to eat. And when you get into a place where you live in a great city, and your house is full of things, and you don't worry about your next meal, that's the place that you forget God and you slip away. And everyone in this room needs to hear that, including the preacher. When you live in a great city, when your house is full of things, and you're not worried about your next meal, that's the place that you must watch out. Because you can quickly just begin to forget about God and slip off the path, and you don't know what's in store for you. I was at Windy Gap, which is a camp for Young Life uh, high school students, and some of you have been there. There's a big zip line that sort of comes off the mountain into the pond. And you get down to where the um, platform is, where you take your harness off, and you get a harness, and then you basically walk halfway around the pond, and then you go across a bridge and up towards where the zip line is. And when you get about halfway across, there's a little picket fence. It's not particularly noteworthy, but it does at least used to have some kind of sign, you know, don't cross this fence. And you wouldn't naturally do it because you go across the bridge. And the reason you want to cross that fence is because zipline comes right down that little stretch of land. So I'm there one summer. This kid walks around the pond. And right on the other side of the fence, there's a little dam and then there's like a snack bar. And he sees somebody. So he decides he'd slip over the fence. So he's standing there chatting with his buddy that's in the little sipping parlor. And I hear it, but he doesn't. You can hear him when the person jumps off. And there's like a zip. Thus, zip line, in case you hadn't picked that one up. And here come two girls. And I don't know how fast you're traveling. Pretty fast. And his head is on a collision course with one of these girls' hips. He has no idea. And I'm standing at the other side, and it's happening too fast. And before I can even yell, he's looking this way, and this girl's hip hits him right in the head, and he falls like a tree. He didn't buckle or anything. He just went straight down. The warning was right in front of him. He had to crawl over the warning to even get to the other side. So many times people come to me, and I'm glad you do, 
But they come with problems because they crawled right over the sign saying, don't go that way. And they're getting creamed on the other side because they really haven't followed either out of ignorance sometimes or just out of sheer disobedience and others to the word. And I just want to look at you, if I can, for a moment and ask you, is there some place in your life that you've slipped off? Because you may be standing there thinking, it's just no big deal. And something's coming for you and it's going to wipe you out. Stay on the path. Understand God's Word. Hide it in your heart. Don't slip over. Don't think because of comfort you have it all made. That's what Moses is trying to tell his people. And that's what I'm encouraging you today. Well, how do we avoid slipping off the path? Pretty simple question. Pretty simple answer, although difficult. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Turn there and we'll look at a few verses there before we close. I just want to be a good Bible student. I I go to uh, Rob Burris' class or I go to Greg Bebb's class and I just, man, I, I don't know, I'm lost in there. I just wish I knew more about the Bible. Oh, they're gifted. The way you know about the Bible is in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You repeat it over and over and over and over and over again. It's not a magic formula. Look, some people are smarter than others. But everybody can just repeat it over and over and over again. That's how you memorize almost anything. You just practice the same piece over and over. Oh, you messed up? Oh, let's start back. You just practice over and over. I think some people think the Holy Spirit's just going to fall on them and they're going to know all about the Bible and they're going to be able to answer every question. That doesn't happen to anyone. So don't expect it to happen to you. Just repeat it over and over and over again. Let's look at what Moses says. Teach. It means to, to pierce like an arrow. You've got to get it down into your soul. Talk about it day and night. When you walk along the path or when you lie down and when you rise up, you've got to bind it on your body somehow. You've got to put it on doorposts. You've got to put it everywhere you can. There's not a special trick to it. You, how do you learn a foreign language best? You know? Sit in a class at UNCW with a real smart professor or go to the culture where all they speak is the language. Everyone's going to tell you, just go to the culture. You're going to be demanded to learn it in some way that's going to be quicker. So you've got to immerse yourself into it. This reminds me of when I was reading books to my kids. Some of you can appreciate this. You sit down with a book and your kids begin to have sort of favorite books that they want to read over and over. And you get pretty tired of them after like half a reading. But you keep moving through. And then you sit back down. Let's read a book. They pick the same book. Well, it doesn't take too long before what happens with your kid. They know the words on the next page. So but while you're sort of turning the page, they're telling you what's going to be on the next page. Because I used to try to turn like four pages at a time because I get tired of it. Oh, you skipped one, Dad. Darn, kid. And so they just sort of read the story. They wouldn't even be looking at the book. And they could say it all. 
And so I got my friends to come over to think my kids were like child prodigies. They could read at two and a half years old. I said, look at this kid. He's smart. Well, they just knew it. Because they just repeated it over and over and over. Parents, are you repeating it over and over? Don't get tired. Don't, don't give up. Don't get discouraged. Repeat it. Don't just do it when they're three. Do it when they're 13. Do it when they're 18. Repeat it over and over and over again. All the messages they're getting from the world are being repeated over and over and over again. You can sing the theme song to the Brady Bunch. You know the names of the kids. Or you can sing the theme song to SpongeBob SquarePants. No matter what age bracket you find yourself in. Who lives in a pineapple underneath the sea? SpongeBob SquarePants. And the reason I know that is not because I've studied it. I didn't go home and get a book on it. I just listened to it over and over. Maybe too many times. That's how you learn the Word of God. It just, you just do it over and over and over again. Finally, just one observation that is a thread through all of these things. Verse 9 in Deuteronomy 4. You don't have to turn there. there. Command them. Mean, meaning the, the Scriptures. Command them to be known to your children and your children's children. Chapter 6, verse 7. Teach them diligently to your children. Deuteronomy 30, 19. Choose life that you and your descendants may live. Parents, the burden... Parks and Liz. The burden of the spiritual development of Lily Kate falls on your shoulders. If your child came to every function that Christ Community Church did, he would probably spend his or 2% of his or her time. So if we fail here, you can still get a 98. And look, we're not failing here, but I'm just... Trying to put that into perspective because so often parents come saying, well, this is where they're getting their spiritual stuff. And if this is it, and they get everything we say, 2%. They can make a 2%. So parents, you've got to be diligent. You can't give up. You have to keep telling your kids about this book And if you're a dad, pick up your Bible and read it to your children. Pick it up. Lead your family in reading the Bible. I hear all the time women groaning, saying, well, let's... Honey, don't you want to pick up the Bible? Can't we? Just trying to urge on the dads. Maybe you're not a good reader. And maybe your wife is a ton smarter than you. Which is the case, I can tell, for many of you all here. And you're just thinking, 
I'm just kind of a loser compared to her because she's done 28 years of BSF and I haven't done one. So I just can't quite figure it all out. She can put it all together. That's just not how my brain works. You can still lead your family. Don't let that be an excuse. You get together with your wife. Nancy, now where were we reading last night? Okay, we were reading Romans 12. Great. Where did we end? Romans 12, 10. Great. Well, let's pick up there. Okay, Nancy, read. You've led. You're the leader. That's all that has to happen. I'm saying if that's all you can do, you can do that. Now, I, I can do it on my own. I'm not promoting myself. I'm just saying if you feel like you can't do it, you can still be the leader. You can still say, it's now time for us to read our Bibles. Honey, help us with this. Does that make sense? Now, you should begin to put on the armor of God for yourself. It shouldn't last that way for 50 years. But at a very minimum, you can still be leading your family's dads by saying, this is the most important thing. It's not my work. It's not my house. It's not the vacation. It's the Bible. And you have a huge influence on that. Even if you're not as bright as your wife, you can still be the leader in your home. If you just don't know where to start, there's all kinds of resources on the table. There's a, there's, there's a discipleship journal piece. It's reading the Bible through a year at a time. I'm not promoting that. I'm just saying, if you don't read the Bible, it's a good place to start. It's what I do. So you can just start with July the 15th, and you can read, I think it's Song of Songs 2 and First Chronicles 20. I'm not sure where we are, because I haven't read mine today. I'm going to read it later. And you can just start right there, and I'll be reading that, and you can say, I didn't understand this. And you can know I'm at least at that point. There's a thing called Table Talk. We've offered it many times. This is reading through a book of the Bible. Then they have article here about it. You can pick one of these things up. You can just start right here. If that's all you can do, this is a great place, a great place to begin. There's a, there's a chapter in a book that we've printed for you by John Piper. It's how to wield the word in the fight for joy. And this gives you lots of different ideas on how do I read the Bible? How do I make it a part of my life? But in the end, we can give you a thousand resources. And you know what needs to happen? You have to do them. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to talk on prayer. And, you know, I can give you all kinds of information on prayer, but you know what, in the end, you've just got to pray. That's the end of it. So if you don't know where to start and you get lost, those are resources for you. But read your Bible. In Deuteronomy 30, it says it's the difference between life and death. Let's pray together. Lord, we've talked about issues of life and death because we've talked about the Bible. Some of us are working on a retirement. Some of us are thinking about an inheritance. Some of us are thinking about our homes. Some of us are thinking about relationships. Some of us are thinking about food. Some of us are sitting here thinking about sleep. Only one thing will not pass away. All of heaven and earth, you say, will pass away. 
and the word will remain. So it is our life. And I pray that you would help these people to encourage them, to help them be surrounded by people that would encourage them to be Bible people. Thank you for your gift of your word. Thank you for your gift of money. And as we exercise a discipline in this offering, may we just recall the great gift of your son, Jesus. And it's in that name we pray. Amen.